In the passage we have just read, 1 Peter 3 and from verse 8, the Lord calls us to a life summed up in one word. In verse 9, contrary-wise. It means a life that is not only different from the world, but opposite to it, going the other way, contrary. And you see this particularly in that verse 9, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you and despitefully use you and so on. And you see that that is one particular example of the contrarywise reaction of believers to those who treat them badly. And then uh, verse 11, rejecting evil and doing good instead, seeking peace and pursuing that. And this is so unlike non-Christians. And it often amazes those who are strangers to grace and has often led to opportunities for verbal witness. A story is told of an army officer who, in giving his testimony, uh, told of an incident in the barracks one day. They had just come in from an exercise and they were exhausted, covered in mud from top to toe and pretty irritable. And it was getting ready for bedding down. And this officer saw another one a few beds away uh, kneeling at his bunk and praying. And this irritated him so much that he threw his boot at the young man. And as the boot hit him, the young man paused in his praying and then carried on praying. And then they went to sleep. And then the next morning, this man found both his boots by his bed, clean, polished, shining. And he was so affected by the contrary wise reaction that the Lord blessed it to his conversion. People can be won through such behavior as this. Contrary wise blessing because we inherit a blessing. But the problem might remain in people's thinking, well, if I am gracious like this, then am I not making myself vulnerable won't people take advantage of me as a soft touch? If I don't get my own back, and if I don't give as good as I get, am I exposing myself to uh, people getting one over on me easily like this? Well, Peter anticipates this thinking, and in verse 12, he writes, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but... The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And then verse 13, who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? 
You remember in the case of the people of Israel who were leaving the land of Egypt and the Lord by the fiery cloudy pillar came between them and the Egyptians. And the Lord was um, a cloud and a darkness to the enemy but a light to his people. And when they were crossing the Red Sea or going through the Red Sea The Lord looked upon the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels and they ground to a halt in the soft sand. And so it's a matter of if we do what the Lord commands, we can leave the consequences with him. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and so on, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. It's an illustration of a principle that we know and must always remember. Obey God and leave everything else to him and he will take care of it for you. So let us consider then the first part of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. And the first thing we see here is who we are, the righteous. And he describes us in this verse 12, in contrast to them that do evil. And being described as the righteous here means righteous in two ways. Firstly, judicially righteous. Because this is justification that's in view here. We can link it with Romans 5 and verse 19. By the obedience of one, Christ our covenant head, shall many be made righteous. Meaning reckoned or constituted righteous. It's because of union with Christ, isn't it? His perfect obedience is ours as much as if we ourselves had obeyed and earned that righteousness he is called Jesus Christ the righteous and we are called the righteous and so judicially speaking and it's not just a matter of being restored to innocence in this imputed righteousness. It's not just that all the charges against us are dropped. It's rather that we are considered positively righteous as if we had always been so. As if we had always obeyed God's law to his satisfaction and therefore we are blessed accordingly. It's the righteousness of another Reckoned ours, made ours, positively so. Therefore you've got it in Song of Solomon 4 and verse 7, where the Lord can say of his church, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Perfectly beautiful, lovely, because righteous in him. So it's a declaration that God makes judicially righteous. 
And so when the Lord looks at you and me, dear friend, in Christ, our Saviour, in union with him, we receive all the benefits of what he has accomplished in his God-pleasing obedience throughout his life, that perfect righteousness God calls you and me, the righteous, in him for his sake. And this is a standing, this is a, a status which never changes. It doesn't become more so, it never will be less so. And it won't be any different when we are in heaven as the just, the spirits of just men made perfect. This is once for all, forever, unchangeably accepted by God in his beloved Son, the righteous in Christ. And that's who we are, judicially righteous. But also, it is practically righteous as well. The righteous in terms of becoming so in life and living. And of course, this is sanctification, isn't it? And our Lord, as in one of his Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that, of course, is a practical righteousness. It's a great concern to so live in conformity to God's word, his laws, his precepts, loving him, keeping his commandments as he gives us the grace to do so. And you'll notice in that verse, uh, Matthew 5 verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The blessing is in the earnest seeking to be righteous, not necessarily in the attainment of it. Because you see, there are many slips and falls, aren't there? But this is God's overall verdict. The righteous. You think of Lot, for instance, in Sodom. And Peter's inspired comment on him. 2 Peter 2 verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now that's just Lot, righteous Lot. Not wholly and consistently so. Certainly not when he went into Sodom. But yet he's called that righteous man because the overall bent of his heart and will and life was to please God. Although not attaining it as much as could be wished. One of the Puritans describes it like this. I think this is very comforting for us. He says that in a, a field of corn, you've got more than corn, sadly. You've got tares, you've got thistles, you've got weeds of all kinds. But yet it's designated by the main thing. It's a cornfield. It's not a weed field or a tear field. It's the main thing that it's called. And you see, the righteous, we're not always perfectly righteous. We stumble, we fail. But we're not called the righteous but 
but we're called the righteous still. It's the overall, and the Lord can see the overall, and the Lord is pleased with that. So practically righteous, and justification is always blessed with sanctification as something inevitable. And so the first then, judicially righteous, is before God as he sees us in Christ. And the second, practically righteous, is as we are before men, our lives as witnessed by others. So that is who we are. Let us look secondly at where we are. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Now here is our position as Christians. And one thing it tells us is that we are dear to God. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Loving superintendents. It's a blessed fact that never changes. Job 36 verse 7. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous. It's as if he can't take his eyes off us. Because you see we're in Christ. We're righteous as Christ is righteous in his sight. We're honestly trying to live out the Christian life in a righteous way. And the eyes of the Lord are over us. And he appreciates us more than we can know. It's not just bare omniscience. His eyes are over everybody. This is how he views his people. So attractive to God. Robert Layton, Archbishop of Glasgow in the 17th century, he put it like this. The eye is the servant of the affections. It naturally turns that way most where the heart is. And God's heart toward us and his eyes follow his heart, loving us as the righteous. And it means, dear friends, every step of our pilgrimage, he lovingly watches over us. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. He sees every good desire which he has put there. He sees every honest effort which he enables us to make. He sees every temptation and every struggle with the old nature and with the evil one and the blandishments of the world. He sees our joys. He sees our tears. He sees our changing circumstances and all the alterations of our feelings, up or down, sometimes very down. And even when we fail, how was it with Peter when he denied the Lord? The Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered. And he went out and wept bitterly. That look, which was not a stern look, but a grieved look. Because it was love. 
that was wounded. And this uh, superintendence, this oversight of us, the eyes of the Lord over us, what is a discomforting thought to the wicked is so comforting to us, isn't it? We are under the eyes of the gracious God who loves us in Christ and he cares for us. It's interesting that the language is used even of the Lord's looking after the land of Canaan in Deuteronomy 11 verse 12 where you've got this. The Lord reminding his people of the good land flowing with milk and honey that they are about to enter. Deuteronomy uh, 11 and verse 12, uh, verse 11, the land whither ye go to possess it, hills and valleys, drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. What a favoured land that was, that God should watch over it, to care for it, to give it the early and the latter rain and to make sure it was the best prepared for his people. And if the eyes of the Lord are upon us, it means his care over our lives and over all our circumstances, meeting our needs, even anticipating our needs and making ready the provision before we even get there, guiding us, intervening to protect us, comforting us, supplying us, being everything a God and a Father can be to us. It's put like this again in 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's omniscience. He sees and knows everything, but to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, meaning sincerity. You see, he sees everyone, generally speaking. But he sees his own particularly and lovingly and is strong on our behalf. Whatever we need in our weakness, God is there in his strong love to care for us and look after us. Again in Jeremiah 24, referring to the exiles that he'd sent into Babylon And there, Jeremiah 24, verses 5 and 6. This is particularly significant when you think of their plight. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I will acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good and I will bring them again to this land and I will build them and not pull them down and I will plant them and not pluck them up you could be in a worse place than as exiles in Babylon 
going to be there for a long time. But the Lord is there with them, watching over them and promising to bless it for their good and bring them home again one day. So that's where we are under the care of a gracious God. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. When you have a caring person, a kind person, you see it in their eyes, don't you? Eyes are so expressive. Sometimes you see eyes of perhaps other people and if looks could kill, and it's all in the eyes. And you, But the eyes of kind, loving people are soft eyes, gentle eyes, loving eyes, and they reassure. And we look over those whom we love, we look at those whom we love, with eyes that speak love and are over them. Make sure they're okay, keeping our eyes on them. Making sure that uh, nothing harms them, seeing to their needs and so on. But the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. That's where we are. What a place to be, isn't it? In the presence of God so close to him that he just looks down upon us and he sees us there and his heart toward us and the eyes of the heart over his people so when you go from this place tonight remember his eyes are over you and when you go to bed tonight turn off the light in the darkness he neither slumbers nor sleeps and he keeps his Israel and his eyes are over you and when the morning comes and it's cold and dark but time to get up and you feel in the depths of your heart you could wish to stay in bed and even feeling so terribly depressed and can hardly face the day it's always worse first thing in the morning isn't it the eyes of the Lord are looking down on you. And when you awake, you are still with him. And his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. So let the eye of faith look up into the face of God and see his eyes looking down. And all will be well. That's where we are. Because of who we are, the righteous and then one more. Not only who we are, where we are, but what we are. Again in verse 12. And his ears are open unto their prayers. So what are we? Those whom God hears when we pray. And we sang in our opening praise, didn't we, from Psalm 86. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me. For I am poor and needy. But he does. His ears are open. You see he listens to us. His ears are open. Not will be. But are. Not will be when you pray. But are even before you pray. Eyes are. Sorry ears are open. Unto their prayers. Just as he's always looking in love. So he is always listening for our prayers. 
with that same love. What a great encouragement to pray, isn't it? Sometimes with these uh, radio programs where there is an opportunity for listeners to phone in. I've never done it myself ever, but certain people seem to enjoy doing it. But anyway, the, um, the announcer will say something like, um, he'll give the phone number and say, the lines are open now. Meaning if you pick up the phone, you'll be, you'll be heard. The lines are open now. As if, come on, let's hear from you. Well, you see, his ears are open unto our prayers. And he's waiting to hear and to be gracious. This is not a remote God whose attention is elsewhere and we must somehow get him to turn towards us and grant us an audience already there, ready and waiting. He's even known for being this in Psalm 65 and verse 2. What does the psalmist say? Oh, thou that hearest prayer. It's an ongoing, unchanging thing right there now, ready for you to pray to. He listens to us. So you can pray always, everywhere. He hears every word, every word of distress you send to him, the inward sigh, the mere whisper, the groan, the telegraph prayer in an instant that you can only manage in a second or so, but he hears it. His ears are open unto your prayers. You've got a lovely illustration of that in Genesis chapter 21, where Hagar and Ishmael, uh, the little boy, are sent away from Abraham's household. And they wander in the desert, in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the water is spent in the bottle. And they're in a desperate plight. And Genesis 21, verse 16, she went and sat her down over against Ishmael a good way off, as it were a bowshot, for she said, let me not see the death of the child. She put him under a bush. Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. You can imagine that wailing despair. But notice verse 17 of Genesis 21. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said, Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. And it suggests, doesn't it, that whereas Hagar the mother cried in despair and wept tears, somehow with Ishmael, there was another voice, a voice of prayer, some knowledge he gained in the household of Abraham. Uh, whether he was a converted man, we don't know. But nonetheless, it's a voice that suggests it was the voice of prayer, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. And my dear friends, for us, he hears our voice 
where we are. In our place of great need, in our place of feeling down, desperation, straits, perplexity, darkness, where he is. His ears are open unto our prayers. And so that we are never ever in a place where prayer is not possible. Every other thing might be shut up to us. As someone has said, they can hem us round, but they can't roof us in because one ear is open, one ear will hear our prayer. And his ears are open to that. And even, dear friends, when we cannot express our prayers very well. And here in this verse, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34 and verse 15, which say almost the same thing, except it goes like this. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Whereas the Apostle Peter puts it as prayers. And isn't that encouraging? Sometimes our prayers are little else than a cry. But his ears are equally open to that. Sometimes perhaps our best prayers are when they're wrung from us in the depths of felt need and emotion. All we can do is cry to God. And inarticulate, maybe, not expressing it very well, fighting for our words. But the Lord reads the heart and can interpret what we mean. And he can pick the sense out of prayers that are so distracted and overwhelmed by emotion and felt need. His ears are open unto their cry. Isn't it a mercy that you don't have to formulate prayer in a very... um, clever way and uh, a very uh, grammatical way and an articulate way before God will take any notice. How wonderful, because this is living, you see. This is real. This is the expression of the soul that can't frame words to send to God in prayer, but instead can only make a cry. But often that's better than our more studied words in prayer. And so that's what we are. God listens to us. It was ever so important for Jeremiah in his lamentations that he could do this when he saw the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city and the temple and the taking away of the people to captivity. But in Lamentations 3 and verse 56... He is able to say this, or verse 55. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. That's very expressive, isn't it? My breathing at my cry. And he goes on to say, thou drewest near. In the day that I called upon thee, and thou saidst, Fear not. And those words, that's all that was needed. 
God was close. God was right there. And he said to me, fear not, because his ears were open. He heard my cry, my strong breathing and trying to get my words out, little better than a cry. And to that, it drew God near. And he said, fear not. You see, this is what we are so favoured as to be heard in this way. So blessed that God so values our prayers and he responds to them in this way. And it, as we conclude, it could also help us for what we call unanswered prayer or delayed answers to prayer. His ears are open unto their prayers. Have you asked for things and you've still not got your request? Well, God's ears have been open and he's heard you. And there is a difference between hearing and answering. He can be hearing you all the time before he finally sends you the answer in his time. But what a thing that our prayers are actually going into the ears of God and he's listening to them. It's like when someone says um, in response to you, you're trying to convey something in a very uh, broken kind of way and trying to express yourself because you're perhaps affected in some way and the person says, it's all right, I hear you. I've got the message. I know what you're saying. I understand. His ears are open, you see? And so he sees you. He hears you. And what a comfort, meanwhile, as we wait. We have his loving oversight. We have his gracious listening all the while. And when the time is right... The hearing will turn to answering. And the Lord, like the captives who were brought back from exile in Babylon, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Like them that dream, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Never give up, dear friends, with your requests. Pray every day, more than once a day. Give him no rest. His ears are open unto your prayers. His heart is toward you, even as his eyes are lovingly to, upon you. And one day, one day soon, the ears open will be the arm made bare. And the hand opened to give you the blessing that you have sought. Well, what a blessing to be a Christian. And how we should, contrary wise, be so different from, opposite to, going the other way from the world. And if the world tries to take advantage well, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are 
Open unto our prayers. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. We're safe. We're blessed. And may we know these precious things. Who we are, the righteous. Where we are, the eyes of the Lord over us. What we are, his ears open unto our prayers. God is waiting to hear tonight at our prayer meeting. May we be helped together. For his name's sake. Amen.